Well, good evening, everybody. Did everybody get the handout for this time? So a little larger handout. Don't be concerned. That doesn't mean we'll go longer. It's just going to be for two weeks. So I went, away, went ahead and made the one for this week and next week. So it's a little bit thicker. Plus, we still have to finish the one from last week as well, right? So uh, we're not quite, not quite. So I had us, I had us leaving off at uh, probably point I on page 19. Does that sound right to everybody else? So page 19, letter I. That's where I had a little mark. I'm hoping that's correct. So if we all have our notes and we feel like we're ready to roll, I will, uh, in a moment, I'll get us started here with a word of prayer. Starting to feel very fall-like out there, isn't it? It's getting a little darker. I feel like, I think the first time I drove down here, it was light the whole time. It's starting to get, it's getting darker. Yeah. Yep. But, um. And back and forth. Yeah. Are we missing the handouts or okay? No. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate whoever prints those. That's a big help. I just uh, magically email them and they show up here in the class. That's a pretty good deal. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your many kindnesses to us. Uh, life, just good health, ability to be out and about tonight. Uh, safety, this, this wonderful church, this community of believers that meets here, and uh, the resources that have been made available to us. We're just thankful for all of it. But uh, most importantly, we're thankful for your Son. Through Him, uh, we see your great love for us and uh, your care. I pray that tonight, as we think about His life and His words, I pray that He would be honored. And uh, we ask for your help and accomplish that. In His name, amen. All right, so when we left off there on page 19, we were talking about uh, John the Baptist, right? And uh, we were talking about the fact that he comes to prepare the way for God or the Lord. Uh, Matthew quotes there from Isaiah 43. And if we put Isaiah 43 side by side with what's taking place, in Matthew chapter 3, we realize that this Lord, this God, that the messenger is preparing the way for is none other than Jesus. Jesus is God himself. And so that fits with uh, what we saw at the very beginning when the angel told Joseph that he would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us. And uh, remember, we'll, we'll talk about this a few times, but the book of Matthew has those great bookends. At the beginning, we find out that the child who's virgin-born is Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of the book, Jesus, standing on the mountain, says to us, as we get ready to go into this dark and dangerous age between his two comings, I'll be with you always, right? And I think... We just kind of intuitively know he doesn't just mean with those 11 men on the mountain. He means all of us. The disciples represent us. So he is God with us. He is with us 
to the very end of the age. He is the God who Isaiah said would someday come to rescue his people. And he sent John, and John looks a lot like Elijah. I think that's another thing that we're supposed to pick up from the story. He, he dresses like Elijah. He's preaching like Elijah. Elijah, remember, he's the prophet that shows up when Israel really is at a crossroads. Uh, the ten northern tribes are, have always had issues with idolatry, but they were trying to worship the true God through idols. That's what they did with the golden calf. But under Ahab, they're just going whole hog, full-blown, we're going to worship the pagan gods around us, which was a major turning point. And Elijah shows up and tells them, you need to repent. Uh, this is going to lead to your judgment and your destruction. And so it's very appropriate now John shows up to the country as well. And he's preaching a message of repentance. Um, it says there in uh, point J that uh, I think this baptism, when it says there that those who accepted John's message were baptized in the Jordan River, baptism, as far as we know, had been used when Gentiles wanted to convert to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile and you were interested in Judaism, that would happen actually more than we think it would because uh, the Jewish people seem to have a philosophy of life that was very clean, very wholesome, uh, very uh, centered on the family. Uh, it looked attractive sometimes to people from the outsiders. They never really wanted to convert completely to being Jewish usually, but there was a category called God-fears, people who were interested in the Old Testament law, uh, sometimes would give to the synagogues or worship in the synagogues. But if you wanted to convert to Judaism, they would, they would plunge you into water. We're not sure why, but probably the best explanation is that the Jewish people thought of themselves as we are the people who crossed through the Red Sea. That's our national identity. We're the, we're the sea-crossing people. And so if you as a Gentile want to join us, you can symbolize that by being plunged into the water and then brought back up. But think about what John is doing. John is saying, hey, if you truly have repented, I want you to go through a ritual that normally Gentiles go through. So he's treating his fellow Jews, his Jewish people, his countrymen, as if they're Gentiles. And I think the point is that their national identity isn't enough. They're not just all as a package, as a group, going to go into the Messiah's kingdom. They actually have to be born again. They have to receive this new heart, and they can demonstrate that by repentance. And so he's treating, I think, I have this quote here from Keener, John was treating his fellow Jews as if they were spiritually Gentiles, calling them to turn to God on the same terms they believe God demanded of Gentiles. So I don't think there's really a large disconnect between John's baptism and our baptism today. So our baptism today says that this person is confessing Jesus as Lord. He's confessing that he or she has been united with Christ. And so he, goes, he or she goes through an outward sign of that. So they've been united with Christ. Now they want to be united with his body, the church, this group of people. And so it's, it's pretty much the same ritual. It's an outward, outward sign of an inward change. However, we have some that show up there in Matthew 2.23, who are, it says there in verse 8, so I'm looking at chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, going back to verse 7, it describes them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them as we go along, but for now it's important to know these are religious leaders. Matthew just names them. He doesn't have to tell you who they are because he just assumes you know them. These are the well-known religious leaders in the community. They show up for, for baptism, and John says no. I mean, it's even stronger than that. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So I think this is really good evidence that at least some Jewish people in the first century thought that their ethnic identity was enough for them to be right with God. It was enough that they were Jewish, that they were descendants of Abraham, that they would enter into this kingdom that John is preaching about. And John is, is saying, no, that, that's not enough. Uh, God, if he'd wanted to, he could turn rocks into sons of Abraham. There's nothing special about that. What he's actually looking for, remember we've talked about this a couple times, is that, that change of heart that Deuteronomy 30 said would take place. And if you showed up and said you'd repent, repented, John said, well, there should be some fruit of that. Because remember, that's, an, that's a, something that happened on the inside that should, then should show out on the exterior. But notice there, point L, what he calls them, brood of vipers. Uh, you know, this is a little bit of, a, I think, an older term that's carried over, maybe even from our King James Version. But, you know, it's basically he's calling them children of snakes, right? You guys are, you guys are snake children. You're snake babies. Um, they think of themselves as whose children? Abraham's children, right? And they take great pride in that. But I think there's at least a little indirect point towards Satan here, right? He doesn't say you're the children of the snake. That would make the connection a little stronger. But just the fact that he would refer to them as children of, of snakes, I don't think that's that much different than in John's gospel when Jesus says strikingly to the, to the Pharisees, you know, you have Satan as your father, right? Because you're liars just like your father, Satan. And maybe it's plural snakes because it's not just Satan and then directly them, but it's been a whole long line of people ever since Adam, right? There's been a whole long family of people who have demonstrated the nature of Satan himself instead of demonstrating the nature of their God or their creator, okay? Let's flip the page there, point M. John makes it very clear that all of Israel needed to repent, and they need to do it quickly because the judgment was near. So he uses this metaphor of the axe is already at the root of the trees. So I think this is just another way of saying the kingdom of heaven is near. Remember I said the kingdom of heaven is near could also be translated as the kingdom is eminent. It's right around the corner. I said that today we're like living in the, the bonus time or the extra time of a soccer match that could end at any moment. Jesus could return. He said he would return as a thief without any warning. And it's been that way ever since he was born. At some time, finally, the, the sword will fall. You know, the buzzer will go off. Uh, this, end, this age will come to an end and there will be judgment. And since we don't know when it will happen, we have to make sure that we're ready for it. And so John is urging his fellow countrymen, you need to repent and you need to do it quickly because the axe is already at the tree. I mean, that's the same kind of urgency that we should have in, in preaching the gospel, right? 
there is wrath coming upon this earth, and it could happen at any moment. And so it's not just something to casually present to our friends and loved ones. There should be a sense of urgency. Urgency, I'd say, tempered, tempered with the, the knowledge that we can't force them or coerce them into a decision, right? Because we could go to either extreme. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. So not manipulative, not coercive, not just trying to play on their emotions to get a, a decision or get them to walk down an aisle, but also a sense of urgency, that wrath is eventually coming. So then in verse 11, John goes on in his preaching. So I think you know, he's expanding upon what the kingdom of heaven is near. So remember, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's like their big idea of their sermon. That's their topic sentence. That's not the only thing that John and Jesus say. So one of the things that John was regularly, I think, talking about was that he was just a, a forerunner. He says that after him, there's going to be someone who comes that's more powerful than, than him. Someone, he says there in verse 11, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He's been baptizing with water, but he says that when this greater or the stronger one comes, he'll baptize you with water and with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people think that's just two descriptions of the same thing. I think everyone agrees that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is a good thing. That's a positive thing. It's probably a reference to all of those Old Testament passages that said that someday God would pour out his spirit on the people of Israel and he would change them. They can't keep the law of Moses, but he's going to enable them so that someday they can keep the new covenant. Uh, someday they'll be able to live forever with their, with their king and not have to worry about falling under covenant curses because they'll be given the spirit. So everyone agrees that's a positive thing. The question is, what is the fire? Is the fire just another description of the Holy Spirit? You know, we could think of like the little flames of fire that show up at the day of Pentecost. So fire sometimes is associated with the Spirit. But I think here in this context, fire is actually a bad thing. I'd, I'd point you to verse 12. In verse 12, uh, John goes on. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. So very clearly in verse 12, fire is a negative thing, right? That's, that's a picture of the lake of fire, of hell. And so I think it also is in the earlier statement. Basically, John's saying there's a great one coming, and when he comes, he's going to divide everyone into two groups. I baptized you with water, but that was just an outward symbol, right? What he's going to do is far greater. He's either going to give you the Spirit, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit, or he's going to plunge you into fire. Because remember, baptism, it means to immerse or plunge a person. So when the original readers would have heard this, you know, they weren't thinking of like a little baptismal tank. They weren't definitely not thinking of sprinkling or pouring. They're thinking of someone just getting plunged into water. So the the other side of the coin would be plunged into fire, right? And I think based on all of the other references that Matthew has and will make to Daniel chapter 7, I think a person familiar with the Old Testament would have remembered that passage where the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne and there's a, there's a sea of fire, a stream of fire, it says, in front of his throne. So this is a, this is a negative picture of what will happen when Jesus comes back someday and separates those out of his kingdom. 
and he'll do it like a farmer who separated the chaff from the grain. All right, I just wanted to briefly come back to something we talked about last time, just before we move along. We're, we'll come back to this in chapter 11 and verse 12, but we've said now that both John and Jesus are preaching the nearness of the kingdom. And in some places, they talk about it as if it's something that's already here, or at least something that's very imminent. And that becomes stronger as we go along. I think the reason they can do that is because the kingdom has multiple parts to it. And sometimes they're referring to the whole by a part. Okay, we can do that sometimes. We'll refer to a whole package, a set of things, by only one prominent feature in it. So I give you there, I know this is something that's interesting to some people and not interesting to others, so uh, take it for what it's worth, okay? But these are some good definitions that I found for what the kingdom of God is. So uh, Roman numeral one there, that little one, I say, for example, one author defined the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. So see how there's three pieces there? So you have God's people, and then you have God's place, God's rule. I think that's, that's relatively helpful. Uh, Dr. Barrick, a longtime professor at the Master's Seminary, Old Testament professor, he had four pieces. He talked about, one, the right to rule, two, rule, as in, I think, like a law or a government, three, a realm, and four, the exercise or function of rulership. I think all these men are wrestling with the fact that, you know, you have to have a, a king, right? You have to have somebody in charge to have a, a kingdom. You have to have some people who are being ruled, right? And because they're humans, because they're people, they have to have a place, right? We're not just disembodied spirits. And if this is all going to take place, we have to have some kind of, like, constitution, some kind of government, some kind of sets of rules. So as the New Testament is going along, the New Testament writers are saying, hey, some of this stuff is starting to fall into place. It's like, you know, we're, we're, there's a banquet going to take place, and we're seeing the table getting set. Some of these pieces are here, and because we see the pieces in place, we have greater confidence that the final, the set is all going to come together. The one I probably like the best here is from Alva J. McLean. He said, the kingdom in the Bible contains, one, a ruler with adequate authority and power. So that would be Jesus, right? He's adequate. He has power. Second, there would be a realm of subjects to be ruled. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this passage were out, right? It's not just going to be a direct rule over everyone. He's going to have a special group of people. So there's going to be subjects or, or citizens of this kingdom. And I think that that realm there could probably be divided into people and also a place. And then third, there has to, actually has to be the actual exercise of that function of rulership. So I've tried, to, I've tried to illustrate this like with a triangle. This might make more sense to me than it does to you, <laughs> but I'm thinking of a, a kingdom as a package, and it has a ruler, Jesus, as a realm, and the realm could be subdivided into people who belong to that kingdom and a place, a homeland, okay, which eventually we know will be the whole world, a new heavens, a new earth. And then there has to be actually like a, a rule, a law, or a functioning government over those people. And so in Matthew's gospel, the, the ruler has already been identified, right? It is Jesus. He is the promised one. He has been born. And he's, he's gathering a people, 
There's some of us who are born again. We have turned from our sins. We, are, we have repented when someone told us that the kingdom of heaven was near. But we're not directly yet underneath his rule in the way that someday we will be. We know that because when we get to the Lord's model prayer, right, it's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's still something incomplete. We, we, we wrestle. Bible scholars like to wrestle with this. Theologians like to wrestle with this. And the, the bottom line is that we just aren't yet in what we will be. We're not yet in the world that we were created for. We know we, we are yearning or longing for a better homeland or city, like the people in Hebrews chapter 11. So the kingdom isn't here. It's not present. But the citizens are here. The king has been born. And we're, our job right now, I think, is in that people category. That's where you and I fit. Where our job is to gather more citizens to gather a larger and larger constituency in each one of our little congregations here in Trenton, up in Allen Park, in dark places like North Korea or Saudi Arabia today. Those are little outposts of kingdom citizens who represent their king. And someday we will all be gathered together into our place, into our homeland. And God's will will be done on earth as it always has been in heaven. And that whole, the whole triangle will be complete. All right, so I think that's what Matthew is, is pushing for. All right, let's flip the page. And I think uh, we come to Jesus' baptism. Okay, so remember, John has set this up by very strong language about, about Jesus' power and authority. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He's, he's much stronger and greater than I. Uh, this baptism that he's performing is for sinners who are claiming that they want to repent and then demonstrating a legitimate change of life that would say that their repentance is genuine. It's against that backdrop then that Jesus shows up, right? Uh, I love this, this opening statement here from Keener. So at the top of page 21, it says, In this paragraph, Matthew tells us of Jesus coming to John for baptism. Then Keener says, Why would the fire baptizer, baptizer seek baptism like an ordinary mortal. So I can't agree with everything in Keener's commentary, but he does have a way with, with words. And, and this one just caught my attention. Why would the fire baptizer, this guy who someday will plunge people either into the spirit or fire, why would he himself show up and want baptism like an ordinary mortal? And of course, that's John's question too, because what does he say? You know, I should... I shouldn't uh, baptize you, you should baptize me, right? So I think the answer to this question is that Jesus is not a sinner. Jesus does not need to repent. Jesus does not need to, to be born again. But Jesus' mis mission is to identify with those who do, right? He came to save people like you and I. Uh, so even in his baptism, I think he's identifying with us. He's if I can use the metaphor, he's, he's plunging into the human race alongside of us. He knows that we need baptism because we needed to repent, because we were sinners, and he's showing us from the get-go, even from the very beginning of his ministry, that he's going to do this alongside of us. Okay. So at the bottom of that paragraph, another quote from Keener, Jesus' baptism, like his impending death, would be vicarious, embraced on behalf of others, with whom the Father had called him to identify. 
Another thing that takes place at Jesus' baptism, not only does he identify with sinners, but this is also a very public setting, point B there, for God the Father to authenticate Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. So God the Father puts a great big arrow sign over his son and says he, he is the real one. In case there's any doubts, this is my servant. This is my chosen one. All of those different Old Testament passages that have pointed to a person, he is it, okay? And so we even get the, the voice of Almighty God speaking from heaven with all kinds of Old Testament allusions taking place in this passage. So I'll put up uh, a few of them here. So I think the first one there, Roman numeral one, the parting of the heavens likely alludes to Isaiah's call for God to intervene and rescue his people. So if later, if you want to uh, look at Isaiah 60, oh, I, I guess you don't have to. It's right there. I forgot I put it up there. So Isaiah 64, one, remember the prophet? He, he's lamenting the predicament in his day. He wants God to come down from heaven and rescue the situation. And the prophet Isaiah, he says, oh, that you, he's talking to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Mark, Mark actually makes the connection a little closer because Mark deliberately uses the same word that appears in the Greek translation of Isaiah. But I think Matthew often will just translate as he goes. So I think Matthew actually reads and is familiar with the Old Testament in Hebrew. He's not always dependent on Greek translations. So I think he's also making this connection. Hey, Isaiah, 700 years ago, he prayed that the, opens, that the heavens would open up like a garment being ripped, and that God would come down to rescue his people. And at Jesus' baptism, there was a sign that took place that said, Isaiah's prayer is coming true. What Isaiah prayed for 700 years has come true. The sky does actually rip open. The one who has come down is there, and the Father then speaks from heaven about him. So I think sometimes we haven't thought, you know, why the... Why the ripping open of the heavens? You know, why that? I think it's an allusion to Isaiah 64. This would be one of those places where if you're real familiar with your Old Testament, you would have leaned in a little bit closer because you would have said, I think I remember that phrase. I've heard that one somewhere before. And this is where it would come from. Another one there, point two, by calling Jesus my son whom I love. The Father is possibly affirming that Jesus is the one who will fulfill the promises made to David. It's a possible connection because remember in the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel, he said that he would treat David and David's sons as his own sons. So the sons of Israel were adopted sons of God. And then God said, but that also comes with the fact that I will discipline you like sons as well. All right, so there's, there's possibly a connection there, but I think the, the wording is actually tighter with Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is a passage we've already looked at because that's where the passage about the Rachel weeping in Ramah comes from. So the fact that Matthew has already pointed to that passage, I think it makes it more likely that he's still thinking about it. There, God says about Ephraim, he says, "'Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight?' So the people of Israel, here the northern tribes, were also God's son. The, the whole nation of Israel was in, was in a sense 
an adopted son of Israel, of God, and so disciplined by God as a son, but not a very obedient son, were they? Ephraim, the northern tribes of Israel especially, failed as sons and went into uh, captivity even earlier than Judah. So I think this might be a little bit of irony in the fact that Israel was not an obedient son, but God's making it very clear that Jesus is different, that Jesus is obedient. And then from Isaiah 42, here is my servant, this is God speaking, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I think that's a very clear connection. Two, two connections. One, the, word, the wording. This is one in whom I delight. And also the fact that the spirit was promised to come upon this person. A couple places in the Old Testament where the Messiah was promised the spirit. So this is the, this is the famous branch passage in Isaiah 11. And you've already seen Isaiah 11. A couple weeks ago, we looked at it when we talked about the new Exodus, because this is the passage where God says he'll reach out his hand a second time and gather the exiles, and he'll do it through a little shoot that grows up out of the stump of Jesse. And he says that person, when he shows up, this little unassuming green twig that starts growing up out of this lopped off stump that represents the dynasty, he won't just be any man, but he'll be a man who has my spirit upon him, all right? So I think speaking of a special ministry of God that enabled Jesus to carry out his function as their king. Because we've got to stop and think about that. Does Jesus need to be born again in the sense that we did? No. So this isn't the spirit as in regeneration, the way we receive the spirit when we're converted. That's not what's taking place. This has got to be something different. This is the spirit as far as enablement. I think it's a parallel to what happens on the day of Pentecost. So on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples receive the spirit, are they being born again at that moment? I don't think so. I think they've already been followers of Christ. I think they're already born again people. But they're receiving the spirit in order to carry out their mission. It's, it's parallel, I think, to Paul's description of us receiving gifts from the Spirit. So you and I, as we gather the citizens of the kingdom, we have been given the power of the Spirit to carry that out. There's things that you and I can do that we couldn't do as unsaved people in order to carry out Jesus' mission. He gave us His Spirit. And now Jesus Himself, the man Jesus, is receiving that Spirit to enable Him to carry out, I think, His miracles and the different things that He will do functioning as Israel's king. All right, any questions there? That's the end of chapter 3. We're getting closer to getting caught up, all right? I think we maybe can get through chapter 4 today, but there's no need to rush if you have a question. So anything I didn't talk about that you want to talk about or anything I can clarify? So it's just in a nutshell, I think three big things happening at the, at the baptism. One, identifying with sinners. Two, it gives God a public setting at the very beginning of his ministry to validate him and say, yes, he is the real deal. And then three, this seems to be the anointing that he receives of the Spirit. Um, and it's not regeneration, Saul, okay? So that's another person we could talk about. Saul, in the Old Testament, he gets the Spirit to enable him to serve as a king but he doesn't even look like he's a believer. So remember, the Spirit can enable unbelievers. The Spirit enabled Balaam. 
the Spirit enabled Balaam's donkey, right? So there's, it's a different thing, I think, than we normally think of as receiving the Spirit. Yes, sir? Yeah, it does seem like, and it's not just for Gentile. They become very interested in ritual baptisms or bathings in general. So archaeologists would say, you know, when we go in and we find the houses from this time period, that they would normally have these little, like little pools that they were large enough that adults could go in and either squat or lay down sideways and dunk their whole body. And so this is something that they did on a regular basis, and then they also seem to have wanted to do it for Gentiles. So because they do it, you know, there, it could have been a, the picture could be cleansing. I'm being cleansed from my sin. But I think it's more likely a picture of, of membership. So then it would be more similar to the way we are baptized today, right? We only are baptized when we're saying we want to join a church. We, we've been united with Christ through faith, and now we want to be united to his body, the church. And the symbol of our union then is, is baptism. So did that start in the intertestamental period then? For Jewish people, it does seem like, yes. Okay. yes, yeah. And then the second thing on the triangle, the bottom right would rule. Yeah. When that's, as, as to time, that's linear, right? That day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, ongoing actual rule of mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah, which in I think in some sense, and this is difficult for me to describe, but in some sense it hasn't yet happened. Like it, and I know this is difficult because we would all say I think we would all say that Jesus is our King, right? That we are underneath His rule, but it's in a very personal sense, right? We don't see His rule over the rest of the world the way that we will someday. His as it says in the model prayer, his will isn't done on earth right now the same way it is on heaven. He's, he's, be, he's being very patient and tolerant of, of unbelief and of sin. And uh, someday it won't be like that. Someday he will rule with a rod of iron. So that's the so type. So the completion or the fulfillment, the, the finalization will be the millennium. The second coming, yeah. And, and remember, I, I, I think of this, the millennium as just the first phase of something that lasts forever. So the prophecy in Isaiah 9, right, is that he will, he will rule on David's throne forever. You know, it's, it's the, um, what's the Christmas passage? It's, I'm drawing a blank on here. So, unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and of the, what is it? The gov- yeah, the, yeah, somewhere in there. I knew there's no end, right? The increase, I'm, I'm mixing King James and other versions in there because that's what we normally hear at Christmas time, right? Yeah, but I'm just, I'm just uh, pointing that out because I think sometimes we put the millennium like that, that little box there is, is Jesus' rule, and that's it. But I think it's better to think of that as just the opening act of something that goes on forever. 
And that fulfills the promise is that he will be a good king forever and ever and ever. And because he, unlike Solomon and all the other Davidic kings, will never disobey God. And uh, there will never be any reason for God to, to choose someone else. Uh, he'll, he'll be the perfect deal. Uh, any other questions there from chapter 3? All right, so let's look at chapter 4. So all, all three of the synoptic Gospels, so when we talk about synoptic, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three that look a lot alike and that tell the same stories, they, all of them, all three of them, link the baptism and the temptation. Those two stories always fit together as a package. And I think the reason for that is because at the baptism, remember, Jesus was contrasted with Israel. Israel was a disobedient son who had to be chastised by their father. Jesus is an obedient son who pleases his father, a son in whom his father delights, right? God says that from heaven, but then he actually proves it. He actually demonstrates it. He puts um, Jesus to the test, and not just any tests. He, he deliberately chooses tests that would have been horrible to endure, but specifically tie back to the history of Israel, right? The fact that he goes into the wilderness of all places and for 40 days goes without food I think is supposed to remind us of the 40 years that the people of Israel lived in the wilderness and also had to depend on God for food. All right. So I think just in the middle of that next paragraph, you flip the page to um, page 22. Um, I say there about the third sentence down, fourth line down, the temptation proved that he was sinless and qualified to be Israel's king. I think that's, in hindsight, I could have highlighted that or made it in bold or something, but I think that's the main thing I want to emphasize there. I think that's what Matthew is emphasizing, that Jesus truly is sinless. God was speaking the truth at the baptism, and this is the, the good king that we've always waited for. Lots of different things that happen here that, again, connect him with Israel. Just the fact, I say there, that Matthew chooses to use the word led, Okay, so Mark uses cast or sent, which is kind of a strange expression, but I think he has his own reasons for doing it. Matthew, I think, knows the story. So I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all heard stories about Jesus. Matthew, as one of the 12, has told them himself. They're, they know that they're told certain ways, and so when they decide to write their gospel accounts, they have different ways of, of saying it. So he, ha he had a choice there in what word he chose, and he chooses led, I think, which is a very common way um, that the Old Testament refers to God guiding his people into the wilderness. All right? And the th key passage, I think, here to highlight is Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. This is the first passage that Jesus quotes from. So Jesus, when he starts responding to Satan, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Um, because, the, remember, the purpose for God sending the people in, of Israel into the, the wilderness was so that their heart could be demonstrated to, for what it really was. So that it, that it would be shown that they actually had an unbelieving, they had a hard heart. They had a heart that needed to be circumcised, as it says in Deuteronomy 30. This is what God says in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5, through Moses. So now Moses is speaking to the second generation of people on the plains of Moab. 
And he says, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you, there's the word, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So you see that there? God himself actually gives the purpose for the wilderness wanderings. It was so that they would, they would hunger and they would have to depend on their God. And that through this trial, it would actually be revealed who they were on the inside, which is one of the reasons God allows us to go through trials, right? It's very easy to look like we are, we're, we're faithful followers of Jesus when things are going very well for us, right? Uh, our regeneration is, is, is truly proven. Our faith is shown to be more precious than gold, is how Peter puts it, when it's refined by fire, right? When we go through trials and when it becomes very difficult to trust and hold on to Christ, but we still do, that means that there's something supernatural that's taken place. We've actually been changed on the inside. We're actually born-again people. That wasn't the people of Israel, right? But it is about Jesus, not in the sense that he had to be born again because he was never lost, but he is actually a, a perfect representation of his, his Father in heaven. And he does, he does uh, stand the test. I mean, just he is a man. He is a man who goes... 40 days without eating in the wilderness. And he's got to be weak. He's got to be in horrible pain. And Satan himself shows up to directly tempt him, manipulating scripture in a very sneaky way. And Jesus just fires back scripture to him, specifically Deuteronomy, right? Because this passage that Jesus, since the little boy, has known and meditated upon. He knows his scriptures. He had to, I know this is puzzling for us, right? Puzzling for me. But he had to learn scripture just like we do. He, Luke says that he grew in wisdom and, and knowledge of God. And uh, he's able to quote scripture back to Satan. So we go through the, the three temptations there. So the first temptation, point one, involved using Jesus' sonship and deity in a way inconsistent with his God-ordained mission. So I'm taking these from one of my colleagues, Dr. Compton, his notes on the gospel. Satan was tempting Jesus to take control of his divine prerogatives rather than submitting them completely to the Father's will. So as far as we know, Jesus did not just run around performing miracles to make his life easier. There's those apocryphal stories about him you know, making little clay birds and blowing on them when he's a boy, but those aren't true. He, does, he lives a normal human life. He, he voluntarily chooses not to do the things that he could do. And so he's certainly not going to do these things to get out from underneath this trial that his father has asked him to go through. The second temptation involves Satan using but misapplying the Old Testament. So remember, if you, uh, if you cast yourself down, right, the angels will catch you. He's quoting from the Old Testament. So he invited Jesus to put... God to the test by demanding miraculous protection as proof of God's care. But the Old Testament condemns putting God to such tests. So God can test us, right? Because we're his creatures, but we can't, we can't put God to the test. Um, we just have to trust that our creator always does what's right. The third temptation, and this one, I think it's important that it comes last because this involves 
the kingship, the rule, right? He's been born to be king. He, is, he, he has the right to the kingdoms of this world. It seems that Satan temporarily, he has been given that by the Father. There's a sense in which Adam, as our first mediatorial king, he was our first leader. He would have been our ruler forever, but he fell. And when he fell and, and decided to succumb to Satan's temptation, there's a, a sense now which God has allowed Satan to have some mediatorial rule over this world, uh, where Satan even shows up, remember, in God's throne room to ask if you know, he can do certain things to Job. But someday that'll be reversed, right? The, the, the Satan will be crushed. Jesus will take back his rightful place. And it's not going to be when Jesus bows down to Satan, right? What Satan is trying to get him to do there, it'll be with, when Jesus actually returns and crushes the serpent. And then finally, after Jesus has successfully resisted all these temptations, he receives the ministry of God's angels. So, that doesn't just happen, okay? I mean, angels don't just show up regularly and help people. They didn't even do that in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's pretty rare that it happens. Uh, but here, uh, I think Jesus' special nature is emphasized that, hey, he does have an army of angels that can show up and they can help him which makes it a little bit more powerful at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus directly says, hey, I could have called angels, right? I could have called angels in the garden to rescue me. I don't need you, Peter, to fight for me. But he chooses not to, which means he chose not to for those 40 days, right, when he was going without food. But at the very end, after he's passed the test, he actually receives angelic help. All right? Going to the next paragraph then, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. So a, a change takes place here in, uh, in verse 13. That actually should say 13 through 25. So it says in verse... No, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong book. Sorry, the wrong chapter. It's chapter 12. I talk about my students going into the fog in Greek class, but... <laughs> They don't realize their teacher goes into the fog all the time. <laughs> chapter 4, verse 12. Okay, I'm on the right page now. So in chapter 4, verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. In verse 13, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. All right, so let's, let's put this map up here again. So we remember when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his, his three surviving sons. So I'll just remind you, this, this red area here was given to his son Archelaus. But Archelaus proved to be so cruel and so inept that after 10 years, it was taken away from him. And Rome just decided, we will directly rule it. That's why Pontius Pilate is on the scene later. So they get a, they get a direct Roman governor over this red area. But Herod Antipas, so he has the same given name as his, his father, basically. So we call him Antipas a lot of times. He gets the green area, or I'm sorry, he gets the purple. So he gets Galilee, and he gets this area of Perea that's just to the east of the Jordan River, roughly two-thirds of the way up the Jordan River. And then there's a, a brother, Philip, who gets uh, the area in orange and doesn't factor in too much in the gospel account. 
And then it's kind of confusing. It almost looks like uh, one of the House of Representatives districting maps, right? It's like just kind of an amoeba everywhere. But you got this green area here, right? There's green here and green here, green up there. That gets kept by the governor in Syria. So Syria is the larger district. So what the Judea, Pontius Pilate's area, that's just thought of as like a, a piece of that. So the, the big wigs, the, the Roman legions, all that kind of stuff would have been up in Damascus. And the green area is under direct Gentile control and pretty much populated by Gentiles. So the strange thing is that, remember, we know from the other Gospels that John ends up in jail because he makes Antipas mad. So it must have been when he's down here in this area, right around the Jordan River, he decides to cross over and he's, he's bold enough to march into to Herod's throne room, it seems like, or at least somewhere where Herod hears him and call him out for his, his, uh, his um, inappropriate uh, marriage, right, with his brother's wife. Uh, so when Jesus retreats to Galilee, he's not really getting away from Herod. That's the point I wanted to make. He's just going from one area that Herod controls to another. So I don't think we should think of Jesus here as escaping, but I do think there's a sense in which he could have lived more quietly and peacefully in Galilee. He chooses Galilee as his home base. Galilee is where he's from. Galilee is a very religious area, a lot of Pharisees in Galilee. He's going to confront a lot of Pharisees, but also a lot of Gentiles. Don't think all Gentiles. It's probably a mixed group. It's at the very northern edge of their territory. It's surrounded on two sides by those green areas that are very heavily Gentile. And there were Greek cities. So probably Joseph and young Jesus went and built one of these large Greek cities that was very near their hometown. So he would have interacted with Gentiles. But Matthew wants to point out something special about this particular area. So this is where Jesus is going to preach. This is where Jesus is going to perform miracles. We know from the other Gospels that he's already been to Jerusalem and he'll go back to Jerusalem. So in John's Gospel, he keeps having cycles where Jesus keeps going back to Jerusalem for the feasts. Matthew never tells us about that. In Matthew's Gospel, he never gets to Jerusalem until... The, the Passion Week at the Triumphal Entry. Um, so Matthew's just telling you part of the story for his own reason. But in Matthew's story, we're emphasizing his ministry far up there in what they consider to be backwards Galilee. And he says that he, he believes now, looking back, that Jesus' ministry there fulfilled Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. So this is what it says there. I'll read from verses 15 and 16. So this is pretty much a direct quote from Isaiah. Again, I think Matthew makes his own translations as he goes. I think he's working from the Hebrew Bible. And he says, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. All right, so this is the same chapter in Isaiah that I just butchered a little bit ago. Remember the the passage, the Christmas passage that we talked about. So remember, this is how the passage starts. It starts by reminding the people in the, the 8th century, the 700s, that are living in Jerusalem, remember that's where Isaiah ministers, that, hey, everyone up to the north, those, those, those other 10 tribes, they're going to fall to the Assyrians. 
The Syrians are going to come from the north. They're going to march through. It's going to be like one of those like movies, you know, where you see the map and then it's getting black because the enemy is moving in. It just keeps getting darker and darker and darker, and you wonder when it's going to get to us. Well, Isaiah says, "Don't worry. Trust in God. Don't go to mediums. Don't consult spirits." Trust in the living God. He's going to protect Jerusalem. And he does. Remember, the Assyrian army besieges Jerusalem. And one night, an angel appears and destroys hundreds of thousands of men in one night. This huge, miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem. But the northern tribes fall. Okay, so the northern tribes on the left, it's hard to see, but this map here shows the, the tribal allotments. And so he's, he's pointing to... This is Naphtali, and this is Zebulun. But in the first century, that would have been the area of Galilee. You see how that, that crosses over? So when Jesus goes to Galilee, he's going back to the old tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. The lands that Isaiah said, hey, they're growing dark. The Assyrian horde is passing through, and they're not going anywhere for a while. But someday, Isaiah said, that where it was the darkest and where the darkness actually began, the people living in darkness would see a great light. That's what Matthew is thinking about. He's saying it's, it's coming true. <laughs> Isaiah's prophecy came true. Those people up there on the edge of the, you know, in every country it's that way, right? All the borders of our country always have more immigrants. They always have more influences from other places. And if our neighbors are dangerous, you know, we're thankful that our neighbors are relatively not dangerous, right? But if our neighbors were dangerous, it'd be more dangerous to live on the edges, and you'd have more problems on the edges. But Isaiah's prophecy is, hey, on the edge, where the darkness ever began and the darkness seemed to be the darkest, those people will actually see a great light. And it's taking place now through the ministry of Jesus. But not just the darkness there, it is also an area of, of Gentiles. So look again at verse 15. It is Galilee of the Gentiles. There's actually three different geographic descriptions. This wasn't in your notes. I thought later I probably should have added this. But So the way of the sea in verse 15, I think it's talking about the space between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. So if you're, a, if you're an army from the north, if you're Assyrians or you're Babylonians and you want to get to Egypt, that's the highway you take. There's nice flat area there between the mountains, between the Mediterranean and the, Gal and the Sea of Galilee. So the land of Israel, I think, is specially chosen by God because it's set at the crossroads of the ancient world. As all of the people from the surrounding countries traveled back and forth between the great empires, they were supposed to cross over this tiny little country where people dressed strange, and they ate strange, and they had a God that was different, and everything seemed to be blessed for them. And it should have, if they had kept the, the law, it should have been a great testimony to how great their God was. They should have been a light, the country. They failed at that mission, but that was their original mission. So I think that's one of the things. It's the way of the sea is that area. He, then he says, beyond the Jordan. So here I think he is, you know, when you say beyond the Jordan, it, it depends on what direction you're facing when you say that. Like, which way am I looking when I say I'm on the other side of the Jordan? I think more likely it's a person standing on where most Jewish people live. So the western bank 
and you're referring to the Eastern Bank. So here, I think there's a little hint that Jesus sometimes is going to cross over into Gentile territory. So remember, if I go back a slide, that, that green area and some of that brown area on the eastern side of Galilee, that is where in a few chapters he's going to cross and he is going to encounter people who are not Jewish. And then the other description that uh, we're given here is that it is Galilee of the Gentiles. All right? So even though there's lots of Jewish people that live in this area, Jesus' choice of that particular region as his home base is just one of several factors in Matthew's Gospel that when Jesus came to save his people Israel's sins, he also intended to save Gentiles like us. As he's going to say in, when we get to chapter 8, that there's going to be Gentiles who sit down at the Messianic banquet with the patriarchs. Okay? Any, any questions there about the, the geography and the use of Isaiah 9? That passage? I promise I won't roam around anymore. <laughs> Again, we look at verse 17. Um, Jesus, I, I, I talked about this last time, Jesus picks up the exact same message as John, right? It's repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, and then he begins to call out disciples. Um, I, I, again, I quoted here from Dr. Compton's notes, points A, B, and C at the bottom of the page. Um, one of the difficulties with the Gospels from our perspective, it's not, a dis, it's not their problem, it's our problem, right? Because they're perfect. Is that we have a hard time figuring out the chronological order of certain things. Sometimes, and I think this is maybe fading in our culture, sometimes when we think of a biography or a story of a person's life, we think of it in kind of a, an orderly fashion from the time they were born till they die. But we don't always tell a story that way. You know, if I asked you, hey, you know, tell me some stuff about Abraham Lincoln, uh, you probably wouldn't have immediately started with, well, he was a baby once in Kentucky. And, you know, you know, probably would have jumped to some of the bigger things, right, that he's more well known for. And the gospel writers do the same thing. They're telling you an accurate story about Jesus, emphasizing the important things that we need to know about his life. John tells us they didn't tell us everything about Jesus because the books couldn't contain that, right? They're selective, and they're not only selective, but they do move things around. They're not always in chronological order. The, the example I gave you the first week, right, is that the order of the temptations isn't the same in all three accounts. So the, there's, there's two different orders. So they're not giving you those always in chronological order. One of them probably is. We just don't know which one it is. Well, the issue with uh, the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and sometimes when you're talking to a skeptic or someone you know, who doubts the historicity of the, the Bible, they'll try to point to stuff like this and, and try to say, hey, you got a mistake. You've got some kind of flaw. And I think you can just calmly you know, explain to them, hey, that's just how we tell stories. I mean, you could watch a movie about someone's life, and we do flashbacks, and we tell things out of order, and you don't get confused by that most of the time, right? We don't get confused by that. We, we just understand that that's how it's working. So actually, it looks like if we compare all the gospel accounts, that John actually tells us about the disciples, some of them actually first meeting Jesus. So John chapter 1, verses 35 and 51 
when uh, John the Baptist is preaching, he already has followers. He has people that are traveling with him and learning from him. And when he says, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it says that two of his followers get up and start following Jesus. And one of them is Andrew. We, we don't get the name of the other one, but one of them is Andrew. And then Andrew goes and he gets his brother, Simon. So Peter and Andrew's first contact with Jesus wasn't the day when he came by and called them from their boat. They'd already met him before that because John tells us that they met him in connection with, with, um, uh, with uh, John the Baptist. And then number two, it seems like we have a second call here. So it seems like Mark chapter 1 and Matthew 4 tell us about a time where after Jesus has returned to Galilee, he meets up with these same men again. They've gone back to fishing for whatever reason, and he asks them to come and follow them. And it's possible in Luke 5 that there's a third call. It could, I could go either way on this one. If you look this up, you can tell me what you think. But I wonder sometimes if Luke 5 and Mark 1 and Matthew 4 are telling the same story. Just Luke 5 might have more detail to it. But the catch is that in Luke 5, um, Jesus comes and he finds Simon and he calls him to come follow him. But the story right before is Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law. So he heals Simon's mother-in-law and then he calls Peter to follow him. So either those two stories are in chronological order or maybe this is a third calling, okay? But I say all that, the big takeaway is there's no reason just to run to the Bible has mistakes or these are contradictory accounts. I think there's very plausible ways that these stories can be combined. And we're just seeing the life of a great man who did incredible things and his followers are looking back under the, leader, the, the guiding of the Holy Spirit and they're choosing certain things that they want to tell you about his life and they don't always tell you those things in, in chronological order. All right, that's enough for tonight. So thank you for coming, and uh, Lord willing, I will see you next week. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.